smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hi this is manjula narayan national books editor hindustan times and this is the books and authors podcast it's a weekly podcast where i speak to authors who've got a new book out So today I have with me Ruth Vanita, who's um, introduced and translated Mahadevi Verma's My Family. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, let's just start straight off with why did you choose this particular book? Well, I am uh, I am very interested in animals. My next book has a large section on animals. I'm very interested in the cruelty to animals uh, and kindness to animals. <laughs> so uh, I like translating them in the while I'm doing other work well, because it just gives my brain a different a break and to do something mm-hmm. different. So I was looking at Mahadevi Verma's uh, uh, writings, prose writings, which I like a lot. And then I discovered this and I really loved it. So that's what. Yeah, it's it's really, a, I mean, it's uh, it's a very short work, but it's, Mm-hmm. very deep in in many ways though even when you i mean when you it's very easy to read but she's uh you know engaging in ideas which are now fashionable i mean for many years you know animal rights and stuff people wouldn't really take it seriously so talk about that yeah her uh, see her ideas don't come i think from modern movements or anything though there were such movements at the time in the west also but her yes. ideas come from i do think two places she had an immense sanskrit and her ideas come from ancient texts uh, which mm-hmm. are very much uh, say in the mahabharata which i have now written about my that book is impressed there's a mm-hmm. lot of discussion and debate about animals whether we should eat them whether we should sacrifice them or not and so on and so forth different kinds of cruelty to animals also mm-hmm. she was a gandhian and to gandhi animals were very important uh, he said that i don't see any difference between the life of a lamb and the life of a person Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he it was very it was very important to him and in that he was different from other um, nationalists i think yes so those i think are the two sources of her feelings and then of course her own experience as she describes in the book as a child she just had that natural compassion and was drawn to animals her mother mm-hmm. was a vegetarian and, a, and may have come from there her father was not most castes mm-hmm. are not vegetarians but women often yes. are and she, yes she just uh, got it from her experience as well yeah Hmm. Okay. So, you know, when I was reading it, I was thinking that, you know, um and you've mentioned it in the introduction about um, these ri- writings are, are meditations in poetic prose. And and mm-hmm. that's that comes out a lot in her uh, in the stories. I mean, there are paragraphs of great beauty, you know, mm-hmm. when he's talking about the deer's eyes and you know, mm-hmm. like, so let's talk about that. Yeah, well, it comes out in the title actually when she says "my family." Anyone with who just read the title will think she's talking about her human family, but mm-hmm. she's not. She had brothers, and she was she had parents, and she was close to them. But she's thinking of as an adult, her family consists of. She had a household in which many people were there, workers and all that. She was single. Chose mm-hmm. uh, not to marry uh, after she uh, left her her husband. She chose not to remarry. Uh, mm-hmm. She. she saw these animals as her family and she lived mm-hmm. with them like that um she when i said meditations it's like uh, though one or two of these stories are, some, are taught to children in school and that's great but mm-hmm. 
he's the, 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 there's a profundity in a way in which she's talking to herself. A lot of it is talking to readers, but also talking to herself and talking about mm-hmm. what she got from the animals, not just what she gave to them, but it's an interaction between her and the her and the peacocks, her and the, and she is aware of the individuality of each to us, all the peacocks may look alike, but she brings mm-hmm. out the individuality of each one. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, especially in that, and, and of course, you know, the stories themselves are very touching, especially the peacock one, you know, and one never thought that, I mean, there's so much jealousy and so much passion among peacocks. Honestly, and she brings that out. So, yeah. Yeah. so you, know, rabbit, you know, where the individual rabbit yes. is different from what you expect from the species. He's a very aggressive rabbit, and she tries <laughs> to put up with it. And he yeah, attacks other animals, including animals much stronger than himself, like snakes and so on. But finally, you know, the way she thinks about it, that as we might think of a human being, that if he's so violent, maybe it's because he suffered violence in his childhood when his mother was killed and his whole family was killed by a cat, and he was a baby. So that's yes. trauma. But, you know, that she thinks of it like that is really quite wonderful. And when I said poetic prose, her prose is really beautiful in Hindi. Uh, again, I think it comes from uh, both life as well as her training. And uh, she sometimes coins words and like Atmika for her preface, mm-hmm. which is and things like that. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, explain the Atmika thing. Uh, Atmika, she uses that title for her preface. So what would normally be yes. called a preface, she calls it Atmika, but it is, she has coined the word from Atma, of course, which, and given it a feminine uh, ending, Atmika, and it is like talking about herself, but mm. it also, it's from her, why, how she got into writing about animals, or about mm. writing those in general, writing in general, and she, uh, so it's connected to that, but it's Atma, Apna, but also in the sense of the spirit, the self that she feels is connected to the spirit of the animals, right? That they are connected. Mm-hmm. The dead animals into the Ganga, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is what is done with human ashes also. So, yes. uh, yeah, I thought it quite a nice uh, title. Yes, and all, all our animals are given very, uh, I mean, nice uh, farewells, you know, like mm-hmm. they just she does, doesn't treat them any different from humans, I guess. So Right. She has written other poetic sketches, which I may also translate, which because we know those better, like the, where she sketches of humans, uh, the people mm-hmm. who uh, for her and the students that she taught. She, you know, the village boy she taught called Hisa. It's a famous sketch, you know. So she brings out that also, the individuality of the poor mainly. But yes, with the animals, definitely, like each one's death is recorded in a specific and unique. Way. like Gillu, mm. the squirrel, how he dies holding on to that same finger that he held on to as a baby. Yes, yes. Mm. Mm. Actually, uh, I mean, most of these stories are quite tragic, I thought, you know. Though, I mean, it's also because animals mostly don't live as long as we do. But, you know. Yeah, it's partly because animals don't live as long, so you usually witness their deaths, and partly because they came to her as rescues. Like the yes. peacocks were, going to, were injured and they had been trapped and they were going to be sold and uh, their claws used for medicine. And she went used to go and rescue them. She bought them. And similarly, the, the deer was rescued after its mother was killed by a hunter. And she really yes. talked about how bad hunting is, according to her. Um, so most of them are rescues, in fact. Yeah. Mm. 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 
you know, you also talk about the genre that Mahadevi invented for autobiographical writing displaces the ego from its center. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, autobiography is actually not an Indian form, really, right? Because in mm-hmm. India, if you look at Indian earlier Indian literature up before the 19th century, most of it, there are one or two exceptions, but mostly you write about others, you write about the world, and you're, you yourself emerge as part of that world, you know? Then mm-hmm. you write about your friends, and then you emerge in that process. You don't write about yourself. Uh, autobiography is a very Western form which came into India from the West, mostly mm-hmm. <laughs> If you think about, say, uh, Valmiki's Ramayan, there is that opening where he talks about his connection with the bird, that he hears the bird uh, being killed and he feels so sad about that. So mm-hmm. there you get a glimpse of who he is. But after that, it's not about him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, whereas, uh, so, uh, so she blends the two forms. So many modern Indian writers have written autobiographies, including in Hindi, and they talk about when they were born and how they lived and their family and their parents and their education and all of that. She doesn't do that. She writes about others. Uh, she wrote also Facebook sketches of her friends who were writers, like uh, Nirala and Sumitranand and Pantan. There's a collection called Patke Sati, which means the companions on the road. Uh, so mm. she wrote about others, and through that, her relationship with them, like she made Nirala her Rakhi brother. So her relationship with them, and you can see, you get glimpses of her through that. But the, mm. she displaces the ego. It's not about herself. It's about the world in which she's immersed, which consists of all these humans, animals, and others, you know? So, mm. uh, yeah. so through her view of them, you get an idea of her as well. Yes, naturally, because her relationships with them, but the focus mm. is on them, not on herself. Her focus is on them. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, does, does that kind of reveal a, a, a you know, a sort of hesitancy or is it, uh, you know, going beyond, like you said, the ego? No, I think it's a conscious choice. She, um, mm. as I said, I think it's because of her own emotion in Indian literature that she ha- she makes a conscious uh, choice not to, uh, uh, Sri Aurobindo said, you know, that writing, he, he didn't approve of writing, he didn't like writing autobiography. It was too mm. much like focus on yourself as if you are the center of the universe but of course you're not, right? And from, from each person radiates out all their relationships which intertwine and there's a whole network of which you are just a tiny part. So yes. she makes I think, a conscious choice to write about these others as she saw them and in relation, it's her view, of course, and it's her relationship with them. And then there's the joking and the talking and the interacting and the feeding and the uh, puzzlement. You don't ever fully understand another person or even another animal. And so she makes mistakes, she misunderstands, she thinks that the rabbit, she can bring him a wife and he will be happy with that, but he's yes. not. Or she thinks that the peacock, peahens who are jealous of each other, they'll work it out if she puts them together, they don't. So yeah. she's one inexperience comes through that she didn't quite understand always. You know, So, so uh, you see her as an individual there uh, through those things, you know, how she grows, how she understands things. And you also see her childhood because she also writes about her animals that she had in childhood. And how she develops as a child, as a school girl, when she takes the mongoose to school, for instance, and she's in this girl's school and they all say they... She doesn't like the school because she has to speak in English there. They don't understand her. They don't understand her religion. They don't understand the mongoose. And she she, she really doesn't. So things like that do come out. You do get to know something about her school days through that. Even though it's not about her in the school, it's about the mongoose. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, you you learn of her reactions to that world as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. All the way she and her siblings used to play in the garden. That's a wonderful image. Oh, which yeah. In smaller towns, really huge yeah. garden and playing in that, and that's how they found the mongoose. But she describes how they used to sneak out in the afternoon, and it, 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 the story is, of course, to tell you how they found the mongoose. But in that process, you see that whole world comes to life. The garden with the leaves and the different berries and the snakes and the mongoose and all that. <laughs> and how the the dog and the mongoose ride the horse. I found, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found the illustration to that so lovely. You know? <laughs> so let's talk about the illustrations as well. The original illustrations, it had original illustrations when first published. They were sketches of just this kind, black and white sketches, but they were not, we felt that evocative. So now uh, Penguin had an artist who did the illustrations. So these are not the original sketches, I should say. Okay, okay. But they're based on the originals. Uh, Just some extent, just in the sense that they are black and white sketches, you know. Okay, okay. Okay. Okay, so I found this also very interesting from your introduction, you know, having a supportive father is often the single most crucial factor for an Indian woman to forge ahead in any field. So let's talk about that because it's true. Uh, Yeah, I think others have also commented on this or mentioned this before, I forget who, but um, the thing is that the father uh, very often has uh, the final say in, in many matters, not always, but very often. And so mm-hmm. mother's support may not always be so effective, first thing. And father's support is much more effective. Father deciding where you can be educated. As I said, this is not true in every family because not true in my family, but uh, in, in many families it is. The second thing is that mothers very often get all the criticism from the relatives and friends if the daughter is acting in ways that are unconventional. The mother is criticized more than the father. So therefore that makes the mother very often more defensive and so she wants to uh, insist that her daughter should be more conventional. One of my friends who's a very unconventional single woman, she's much older than me, she said her mother died when she was three or four and she said if my mother had lived, I would not have become a professor at Delhi University. I would have, or just lived the life she lived, I would have been married off. But because her mother died, her father didn't have the wherewithal. He was kind of a nationalist and and her brother and sister were not interested in her. So she managed to do the things she did. So there's a, of course, she feels terrible that she lost her mother, but, you know, the mother is very often the one that shapes you, but also the one in girls' cases who might be more conventional than the father in some, in many instances, a liberal father who backs the daughter's education career, etc., can make a big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I suppose at that point, it was even more important, right? I mean... Uh, yeah. Well, India is such a vast country. I mean, I'm sure that there are many, many places in India where it's still true. Yeah. No. no I mean, yeah, yeah. India is a vast country, but like uh, in the early part of the 20th century, I, I yeah. don't think, you know, uh, they weren't, even if it's vast, if they weren't that great, you know, the attitudes towards women, I don't think differed that much, you know. I deferred community to community. Kayasthas always had highly educated women. They might have got married, but they were educated before they got married. They were very accomplished. They designed dance and music, etc. Kayastha mm-hmm. women mostly did. They're not India. I don't know about the rest of the country. And so, and she is from a Kayastha background. So that made mm-hmm. uh, some difference, I think. But within the Kayasthas also, her father was more liberal than others. So, yeah. Yes. Though he didn't, I mean, he didn't resist the early marriage. Now, about that, 
you know this bit where you mentioned how uh, this marxist writer said that it was because she had uh, had an affair with somebody but she was so young she was like 9 years old right when she was married yes sir made it up out of whole cloth his only evidence for that is that she used to go and visit her close friend who was the princess uh, in the palace hmm. uh at that time there was a eligible young man around in the palace and then when he went to the palace years later the somebody said or oh, somebody said one person suggested to him that maybe she was interested in this guy that's not enough evidence to claim that there was any romance or anything right yeah and the specific detail that he was muslim and i thought i think he just likes the idea of a hindu muslim affair so he is just imposing his own life yeah some marxist <laughs> it's so common among the commentators and that is they all say oh she was single she was frustrated she was lonely and that's all her poetry is a lament and it's a shriek and it's a, and and uh, the fact that they almost feel as if they barely mention the animals but if they do it's like the animals are a compensation for her loneliness poor thing you know that kind of idea which i totally disagree with and i remember when i was single and teaching at mananda house and in those days there were many single teachers there uh, who were unmarried later in life and we would be once we got this ridiculous question there from the sociology some student in sociology saying for single women saying every question was slanted towards what problems have you faced how have you been lonely what kind of companionship would you like as if we don't have any companionship and i just gave very funny answers to all of them um <laughs> so much assuming that it's a it's a it's a that a single woman is frustrated and lonely and has and uh, hasn't chosen to be single but has not had the opportunity and that sort of thing you know it's really bizarre because you can be frustrated and lonely when you're married as well <laughs> Yeah, and there are plenty of uh, women who are, I mean some single women are frustrated and lonely but then there are plenty who are all who every time you and Miranda also were very active energetic joyful and cheerful and we had a lot of fun together so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay this is also a, a good bit you know mahadevi was among the most illustrious of two generations and i think you mentioned in in some footnote about a book on this right two generations of women who during the independence movement and the first four decades of independent india chose to remain single and immerse themselves in their work you know yes, so it is quite true that for those generations even my teachers even my teachers in both school and college i had many more single women teachers for example in mananda house than are now there so on the mm-hmm. one hand this as negative because you had to choose you basically have to choose between having a full fledged career and have and being married uh mm-hmm. and now you don't have to choose but yes. you can also see it as uh, see the positive side of this that many of them and this is women of all types from uh, hindi speaking to english speaking left it doesn't matter politically from left wing to right wing there were many mm-hmm. women uh, not just gandhians who who just ordinary women who Uh, became teachers became uh, uh, in college and in schools and other things nurses etc and they didn't marry and it was seen as acceptable even when we were working on manushi um mm. uh, everyone said oh they they understood it they had a framework within which our neighbors in lajpat nagar could understand it as they have their they have dedicated their lives to social work that's how they saw it and so they they admired it um and mm. uh, yeah so um, so in a sense we've become more conservative in that sphere right 
in one way because now there's a lot of uh, there's always been pressure to marry but we had this view that you could do other things and we had that i think it's largely largely due to gandhi but not only due to gandhi that we mm-hmm. had that view and now i think the pressure to marry is also what you can have a career and you can also marry look at x y and z so you should marry right? so that uh, and if not marry at least you should have a boyfriend or a uh maybe these days even a girlfriend but being single i mean you should uh, you should um, have somebody otherwise we have this whole post freud idea of if you don't you'll be frustrated right that mm-hmm. yeah. you have to be part of a unit of a couple yeah and you have mm-hmm. to have regular sex or whatever it's assumed that if you marry you have regular sex which of course is not <laughs> <laughs> so. okay Hmm. and uh, also this you know mahadevi's concern for entrapped hunted and tortured animals is related to concern and you talk about the uh, you know 19th century being um, uh, a period that gave rise to modern movements for laws to prevent or you know let's talk about this just not just for animals but humans uh, you know children women all that and the mentally across yeah, right now in victorian literature and what we often think when we say victorian if i ask my students they immediately think oh puritan conservative etc and what they don't realize is that it was the 19th century in the west i'm talking about uh, mm. romantic writers and the victorian writers that whole 19th century is the period when all of these movements ideas and debates came up uh, working people's rights women's rights uh, anti cruelty to animals conserving nature um, uh, prison reform uh reforming the laws with regard to marriage and custody and so many other things reforming the laws with regard to homosexuality all of this stuff and much more it developed in the uh, dress reform changing the dress all of that uh, it's it's very much 19th century movement and then to some extent that's true even of india right? in the 19th century yes. there's a lot of movements and debates to change not all of these things but some many of these things and, mm. uh, and some different things as well but um, yeah Yeah, like the reform movements like Aryan Samaj, Prarthana Samaj and Brahmo Samaj. Yes, they didn't yes. pay as much uh, they didn't pay as much uh, attention to animals. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think Gandhi who brought that into the discourse much more than anyone. Yeah. Hmm. But that's strange because uh, you know Jainism, Buddhism, uh, you know, have such a focus on that, right? On on animals, and it's yeah, right. And maybe that's why they didn't pay attention to it because it was already in the air. It was already if in India are much they're very different from the West. In India, mm-hmm. we already had all those ideas, right? It's not like many of those yeah. ideas that we already had, yeah. Yeah but I guess the activism came from uh, from I mean maybe exposure to the possibility of like the anti vivisection movements and all you know that you say that Gandhi was I mean he you know he was influenced by so well these practices come from the west don't they vivisection is a practice that comes from the yes, west that's true that's true there was, there was indian medical practice but they didn't uh, dissect animals cut up animals yeah yeah yeah, yeah. living ones at least and so then when vivisection comes and anti vivisection is also going to come similarly yes. when factory farming comes that idea comes from the west factory farming and slaughter houses on this yes. street uh then the and the response to that is also going to come so when when one says it, the movement comes from the west there are a lot of people very hostile to peter for example the movement mm. comes from the west but you don't realize that the practices also that, that they are protesting have also come from the west mostly not entirely there is a lot of cruelty to animals in india before that also which is why the yeah. mahabharata is discussing it for example so that means it is already there but yes. uh, the scale of it uh, the kind of factory farming that we now have uh, that definitely has come from the west you know the huge slaughterhouse yeah. 
And also one should say the increase as the economy improves and uh, people have more money, the increase in meat eating, especially among men, but women also, and especially as you get more money, you, you can eat more meat. I think one of the most important parts of Indian cuisine is not being vegetarian, though that is also important. But it is that even non-vegetarians don't eat as much meat as in the West. Like I grew up in a non-vegetarian family, but we mm. ate meat three times a, a week. And, and it was only one of all kinds of things with dal and sabzi and all that, right? It was not the main thing as it is uh, in the West. So for many families in India who are non-vegetarian, they only eat meat a few times, a couple of times a week. And and there are whole parts of the year when they don't eat it. At Navratri, they don't eat it. Everybody has their own days when they don't eat meat, right? Yes. And, uh, and also, so it's very different. Meat eating in India is very different from meat eating in the West. Mostly, there are exceptions where there are people on in coastal areas, etc., who eat meat or fish every day and mm-hmm. at, at every meal. But that is still an exception for most of the country. Yeah. Yes. You know, this guy, uh, this uh, leopard uh, person, Sanjay Gubbi from Karnataka, who's written a book on, on leopards just recently, he was uh-huh. saying that as, as societies become more uh, prosperous, you know, mm-hmm. then the protein intake increases. I mean, he was saying it in the context of why, uh, you know, leopards are, humans and leopards are coming into conflict, conflict you mm-hmm. know, in cities. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so that's also a reason because our consumption of meat and poultry and, you know, factory farming on the fringes of the cities, of course, this would be going off at a tangent, but I just couldn't resist it, you know. Mm-hmm. And as a result of, it's a result of us, eating more meat and and you're right well like when i was yeah. uh, growing up you know we'd eat meat once or twice a week and maybe mm-hmm. not not and now i find you know, even eggs was it wasn't that regular so mm-hmm. and now yeah, of course it's it's protein in fact as we know red meat is not really good for your health a lot of it is not good for your health but mm-hmm. i don't the protein because India has the range of dals and the range of lentils we have is not found in most other cuisines. Most of these dals mm. are not found in other parts of the world. So we mm. have plenty of other protein. But it mm. I would connect it to also style and to desire. As you become richer, you if you think of meat as a delicacy, if you don't think of it as a delicacy, then you're not going to go after it. But if you become richer and you think of it as a delicacy, then you'll want to eat more of it. Secondly, mm. with all the food available, you know, uh, it's true yes. that it McDonald's also has a lot of vegetarian choices, which is wonderful. But still, with all the fast food available, you get pepperoni on the pizza. You get, you know, so a lot of this meat eating is outside also. Yeah. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. And also, it's like disconnected, like, like you when you in in the book you mention about how you know a lot lot of uh, people don't connect, you know, uh, in urban areas don't connect the cow with the milk right uh, with the milk that you get in a packet so similarly yeah. like the meat that you're getting you know on your fast food it's so processed that you don't really i mean you don't connect it immediately right. to some animal, right? exactly. as one writer said if the walls of slaughterhouses were made of glass like most of the world would become vegetarian if you saw how the animals were being killed and treated and uh, in what filthy conditions and with what cruelty, you probably, many people would stop eating it. Similarly with milk, in the story about her cow, in the sketch about her cow, she describes how even after the calf has had its fill, she has a lot of milk still left. And so the calf is not being starved and deprived. But in in, in today, mostly they kill the calves. They even, This is traditional Indian practice too. They put the skin of the calf over a wooden frame so the cow thinks the calf is there and will keep giving milk. They deprive the calf, they kill the calf and they 
force the uh, the cow to be pregnant all the time and keep giving milk um, in effect and taking extracting the milk by machines the cow has no place to move so the cruelty in getting milk is very great now it's not like having a cow your own family cow you know yes You're, that's true Actually, while I was reading this book, you know, the thought I actually made a note that maybe I should become vegetarian because this book actually makes you think about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and very few Indian writers, uh, creative writers uh, in India or in in, in English, uh, have uh, dwelt on this. You know, have uh, talked about this, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because I, I guess you know it also is like we have this. Um, uh, we kind of embarrassed to talk about it, or maybe, maybe embarrassed is not the right word. We just we just wary of talking about it. I don't know. It's seen as a backward uh, <laughs> kind of an uh, idea connected to religion and things like yes. that. Yes. Yes. Not it has not. It has. I mean, yes, some religions, all religions, I think, debate and talk about it to some extent. But uh, mm-hmm. there are plenty of non-religious people who, for ethical reasons and for uh, anti-cruelty reasons, they uh, don't want to do this to, to eat meat, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you say this also. Twentieth-century Indian writers, eager to prove their modern humanist credentials, tend to adopt dominant colonial views and therefore do not depict animals as having agency. I became a vegetarian in my twenties after mm-hmm. reading uh, the writings of Percy Shelley, the Romantic poet. And I was just trying to make out the, that it doesn't have to be linked to religion because he became an atheist when he was 18 years old and he wrote mm-hmm. a chapter by an atheist for which he was expelled from Oxford University. And <laughs> after, that, he, after that, he wrote about many causes such as women's rights and um, mm-hmm. Irish uh, freedom. And one of the causes he wrote about was animal suffering. And he also was influenced by Indian writings that he had read in translation. But anyway, he made this point. He said that if you think you are actually a carnivore and you then like other carnivorous animals, you go kill the animal yourself and then eat the animal. Why are you making other people go through that sort of trauma of killing animals so that you can, yeah, for example, you kill it yourself. Then Mm -hmm. I realized that I will never be able to kill an animal myself and eat it. So that was the final reason. I had been thinking about it already, but that was the final reason why I became a vegetarian. So I think writers have played a great role in Mm. um, showing this, in showing some of this cruelty, because literature appeals to you in a way that politics may not, you know, a political writer may not. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, if like you know, you have this gen- one has a general tendency, like if an activist comes and you know thrusts a pamphlet and says you shouldn't do this, then you immediately think why I will do it, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas yeah. if if it's a uh, when you read it in a writer you admire, immediately you think that you know perhaps this is yeah. what you should do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so you mentioned that Mahadevi's prose was hard for me to reproduce in English. Let's talk about that because I didn't, find, you know, I found when I read it, it was, it was, it's really good reading. So I mm. was wondering about the difficulty of the of the translation. You know, well, how translation of course meant for people who can't read in the original language or don't feel like yeah. reading the language, they don't read it as easily. So mm. uh, that's so. So the point for the English translation is that it should flow. And that's what I focus on. I try to focus on the fluidity for the English reader. But in any translation, you will always miss, especially the poetry, but her prose is also very poetic. And so you will always miss certain nuances. You just 
can't um, mm. uh, uh, reproduce it. For, for one thing, there are some words for which there's no uh, Western, there's no English equivalent. You would have to explain it. But also just the movement of the sentence is, uh, uh, you can't really um, uh, uh, reproduce it entirely. For example, the last line of, uh, of Gillu, the last line of that uh, sketch mm. of the sentence. Samadhi is not just the same as a grave. It really isn't. Yes, yes. Another word, lagugat, that tiny body. But gat is not exactly body, it's the width of the body. That And lagu has a sort of tenderness, which for me, tiny does. So you can see that there are aspects yeah. which are a little difficult to bring out. In, in, in yeah, yeah. And it, it, it sounds, I mean, it sounds very different in Hindi, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but but still even i mean even it it sounded it sounded i mean the stories read very well you know the, and i i didn't find myself wondering because sometimes with bad translations you you wonder oh what what was the original like <laughs> you know or you try and tra- translate it back in your head which didn't happen with this so <laughs> But also, you know, like for a non-Indian reader, I'm wondering how things like uh, like you put it in a you put it in the footnotes. But things like Neelkant and all, how will a even the samadhi? How will a non-Indian reader understand it? Yeah. Well, some words won't be understood even by, say, readers in uh, readers in English uh, who are non-Hindi uh, speaking. They may not mm-hmm. understand Neil Kant. And Neil Kant, of course, we know is Shiva, but uh, but some may not know also. Uh, yeah. So that's why I had the footnotes. Uh, I gave this book to Penguin India, and in many of my earlier books, I have had an Indian edition and a US edition. I have stopped oh. pretty much stopped doing that because I find that Western readers. Uh, I'm not that interested, at least US readers are not that interested, so I don't know, I may change this again, but uh, that's why I just gave it, I think most of my readers are really in India, and those who are abroad can get it, uh, Penguin can still, is distributing in the West, but not with the same uh, expanse that a, that a Western reader would, so, but yeah, that's just a, <laughs> a dilemma. This is a general question, what was the most difficult thing about this project? It wasn't terribly difficult. I've done a lot of translation from Hindi and Urdu and some from Sanskrit before, but mostly Hindi and Urdu. So mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't that difficult. Uh, there were one or two uh, references to particular local plants and so on, which are not uh, uh, Corinda, for example. It's a Corinda berry, which I hadn't come across. There's a few plants and specific plants and birds for which there's no English equivalent. You can either keep the original or you have to search for, but not a lot. It wasn't the most mm-hmm. difficult. No, to me, it's pretty comprehensible. It's it's a it's a it's not easy Hindi. It's not entirely colloquial Hindi. It is, and that's why I said it's not very good for children. For most of it's not very well. You have to know Hindi really well. But ab dukda dohan dohan ki samasya koi thai samadhan chakti thi. You see the 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 formation, grammatical formation, and also the words are somewhat difficult. You have to know Hindi well to be able to, you know. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I love the irony of the last word of this uh, Gaurada cow, you know, mm-hmm. 
But alas, my cow protecting country because the whole story is actually, I mean, it, it centers on on what happens to the cow, right? Yeah. Well, everyone loves the cow, but still there is also, the, when it comes, all of them are very happy, but, and the animals and the people, but uh, there's still a lot of cruelty to cows as well in India, which we don't realize yes. how Yes, not just yes. from killing and eating them, but also for the leather, also for the way the milk they are treated by the people who are doing. As I said, the milking, and this is even a traditional milkman who who kills the cow. So it's not even a farm factory farming kind of a situation. Yeah, cruelty to cattle that goes on. Yeah, yeah. So that's also, the general. I mean, cows wander around eating plastic in this country. So. You know, yeah, and then particularly bulls. The Mahabharata also comments on this. The Mahabharata has a whole section about how badly the bulls are treated, um, beaten and made to work in the sun. There's a very moving section, which I have written about in my next book is on the Mahabharata. It's called The Dharma of Justice. And mm-hmm. uh, there I talk about the, all the debates on animals in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana also. So they talk about the cruelty to all to different animals, including cows and bulls particularly. Yeah. Hmm. So the next book is all, is about the, uh, about animals. So this is, is this is like a companion volume almost, or it leads <laughs> no, into that. No, no. The next book is called the Dharma of Justice, and it is about gender, varna, and animals. So it's okay. all three. So I'm talking about the debates in the epics, both Ramayana and Mahabharata, more Mahabharata, uh, about gender and about varna and about uh, animals, and also other categories like disability, old age, other groups that are kind of uh, mistreated. So, um, but animals, I, my main conclusion is about animals where I'm kind of arguing that the dharma that is most available to everyone is kindness to animals. Because however poor you are, usually you have the ability to be kind or cruel to an animal and insect because they are the most powerless compared to humans, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that's my argument. Yeah. yeah, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> so which one is your favorite story? If you have a person, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have to say I, I loved all of them, but I guess um, uh, the the peacock and Gora, Gora, uh, Gora, they all have wonderful lines. Gildo has some wonderful lines, but yeah, I would say uh, Nilkant and uh, Gora might be the ones I like the best. Yeah. Mm. And I really like Africa, the precious, where she talks about that little chicken that she saved and how yeah, all that yeah. comes from that. Yeah, and this, uh, and, and some, I mean, w- within the stories, these like revelations, uh, I thought were very nice. It was yeah. natural for Tej, uh, Taj Rani to be influenced by our anarchic tendencies. Children do not perceive different levels of consciousness. They perceive just one one consciousness. For them, animals, birds and plants all belong to one family. You know, yeah. and that's a lovely, I mean, such a lovely line. And, yeah. and maybe adulthood uh, is when you lose that. Right, and um, it's absolutely adulthood is when we lose the start losing the imagination, as Wordsworth said. We get distanced. Children are much more immersed in the entire world than adults are. You know, they are preoccupied with their routine, with their career, etc. Children don't have those preoccupations, especially small children, preschool children, and. Uh, that is why a lot of writing in the West, you know, in India, we have a long tradition of talking animals in, in serious adult literature in the West. Mm. That kind of literature has been, been relegated to children's literature because children mm. are aware that animals have feelings and ha- animals have uh, ways of communicating. They have language. But um, adults very often, in order to rationalize our own cruelty, 
we say like Descartes, the philosopher Descartes said that animals are they, they don't have feelings and fish don't have feelings and sex don't have feelings. Yeah. We want yeah. to think that. Though at one level we know that they do, but we want to tell ourselves that. But children don't have that divided consciousness mostly. They sort of and I don't want to idealize children. Children can also be yeah. very cruel, especially yes, of course. but like uh, these children wanting uh, to cut up your stomach, the horse's stomach. <laughs>
our interactions with animals. I mean, that's one of the sad, sadder things about uh, Western cities. I always thought. I mean, you don't you don't see animals by themselves. You see them as pets. I mean, you see people walking dogs, but you won't yeah. see the dogs and cats having independent lives like they do here. But God yeah. knows how long that's yeah. gonna last. But in India too, the ones that have independent lives, some people are, are kind to them, or some people don't mind them, but some people hate them. You know, the stray yeah. dogs. Pigeons uh, in the West very often pigeons are seen as vermin who should be exterminated. There's this hatred yeah. for them also, which is very sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the the Duke of Edinburgh said that they were flying rats. I remember. <laughs> and this bit is really nice. I too am displeased with Durmukh. He worked as a secret agent for Ram, the ideal man. He told Ram about the washerwoman, washerman's slander of Sita, which led to Sita's banishment. You know, I didn't even know that his name was Durmukh. The... It's not. It's not. But this must be a le- from a later retelling, maybe. Yeah. And so it was very interesting. Yeah. I also only discovered that that name from her. That it was his name from her. Uh, Writing and also she so she does connect it to literature, connect life to literature. For instance, with the deer, she quotes from Shakuntala from the Mahabharata yes. about the Shakuntala and her deer, the relationship between them, and says that deer have always been part of our literature. So yeah, she she can she brings different perspectives, not just her personal one, but literary ones, philosophical ones, <laughs> to the writing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, okay. So uh, um, you know, I, I mean. I think that should be it. I I loved reading this book. You know, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, <laughs> and thank you for coming on the show. And for the reader, uh, for the listener, sorry, uh, please go out and get My Family by Mahadevi Verma, introduced and translated by Ruth Vanita. It's really a good read. I mean, it's not very long, but it's very deep. I found, I found, and you know, especially if you uh, you like animals, then it's it's a must read. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.